0: So, let's get into CPAC. And this is a, a very big one. This is a big one. Like, I don't think I've ever covered a CPAC speech on this podcast. I'm not entirely sure. But this one, this one, uh, once I started hearing and uh, once I started looking at the, the people speaking and listened to some of their speeches, I realized, you know, one, one, in the context that this is 2024, I realized that these people are actually outlining the future. Like, in a sort of a sort of Bretton Woods conference style or Yalta conference style, the big heavy hitters, the big names are coming together to lay out what the new order is going to be. Now, it's not the new global order. No, the new global order is largely going to be defined by what happens with BRICS, and so we're going to be looking at events in russia because BRICS, uh uh russia's you know the rotating presidency russia has the presidency of BRICS right now and there's gonna be a major BRICS summit in russia this year later on this year so we'll cover what happens there but this cpac will not while it won't be uh setting the stage for what the new global order is going to be and how the new international system is going to be it is important For how the new national system is going to function in America. And I don't think it's just going to be America. But I think that this is laying the groundwork for a... a, I said it in the beginning of this podcast. The groundwork for a pan-American future. I'm talking an American future that is rooted in North and South America. And doing a lot of integration with our neighbors. That's what I'm seeing here. That's what I'm seeing here. And I think that that is a, a huge divergence from what we see today where we're trying to be everywhere all at once and when we're we're trying to superimpose this, this identity, the West, onto America, and that's all gonna come crashing down. So what will replace it? Are we gonna go total America, which I would not be opposed to, but on the condition that we're doing trade with everyone, you know, I don't think, I don't think North Korea or Qing dynasty style isolation is good for America. And I don't think we have, nobody in America has ever called for that kind of isolation. Uh, Ironically, not even people who have been labeled isolationists. Like I, that's just not what isolationism is in the American context. Isolationism could be better summarized in the term sovereignty, sovereignism. That's, what people want for America. People who want less American involvement around the world want sovereignism. And I have myself in particular have articulated that that sovereignism should be rooted in a mutual respect for the boundaries of our neighbors and, you know, may, may, we may or may not annex Canada at some point in the future. I think we should pursue the purchase of Greenland. And from there... America is a satisfied power, but I have ar- argued that American interests are a lot closer to home than the modern status quo and the modern foreign policy establishment want us to believe, and I would even add in modern historians uh, themselves believe precisely because it doesn't make sense to have interests thousands of miles from your shores. It just it just doesn't make sense unless you're an empire, in which case then we have to distinguish between the American empire and the American nation. And if you are... If your line of thinking is more national rather than imperial, well, then you don't have interests in the South China Sea. You don't have interests in the Indo-Pacific. Not past Midway, you don't. I mean, shoot. Uh, Sure, Guam is there, but Guam is 3,000 miles from Taiwan. Well, 2,700. Well, I mean, but if you're thinking nationally rather than imperially, you don't have... Any, America doesn't have interest in Europe. It doesn't have any more than it has interest in Africa or the Middle East. And so, the, we're at a point now where the two Americas can't coexist. The two Americas can't coexist anymore. That's where we're at now. And we're quickly coming to this. Uh, this fork in the road, this inflection point, if you will, where we're going to have to make the choice which one we are. America the nation, and will we just go down with the ship because the ship is sinking and fast? Or are we the American nation? And I think that the choice is increasingly likely to be that we are the American nation. We don't want commitments around the world. We don't want to be drawn into everybody's war because of some alliance in some random part of the globe that we don't care about and don't know about. And we don't want to be browbeaten into thinking that we're bad people because we don't want to support, insert country here. We love America. Why can our foreign policy not reflect that? And that is the frustration that will ultimately guide... That That's the frustration that has in part led us to the MAGA movement, uh, not that's the foreign policy side of things the domestic policy side of things is that we've seen nothing but decline in exchange for this empire and all this influence we have around the world that old order is rapidly approaching an end from external forces with the rise of china the resurgence of russia the, the creation of the BRICS, the strengthening of the bricks and the expansion of the BRICS, to this war in ukraine where we see we see the results of deindustrialization in the United States and Europe. Decline at home, matched with decline abroad, has produced a, a situation where the empire is no longer sustainable. And in the new era, which will define the rest of this century, we're going to be living in a post empire world. Uh, not that no one else is going to have empire, but I'm talking specifically about the American empire. We're going to be living in a post-American empire world. That means a new international system that is largely going to be uh, forged and redefined by the BRICS, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, uh, the various other international institutions, the Arab League, the uh, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, perhaps a different form of international cooperation in the European zone. I'm not entirely sure how... Well, the EU is going to be able to function in this environment. It might be able to do well. Who knows? Uh, and, and, of course, the Belt and Road. But what we're not going to see is an American influence and presence on every corner of the globe. That era is over. So what will replace that? I believe that what replaces that is a new national system of American foreign and domestic policy where we come, we bring our attention much closer to home. And that is, you know... Uh, obvious with America first, America first. But American interests, as I stated, as as I lean on the Monroe Doctrine to articulate, our interests are in preserving the sovereignty of North and South America from outside powers, and one of the easier ways to do that is to have good working relationships with our neighbors. So... Given that these are my beliefs and that I've articulated these, I found it very, very interesting that we, as we stand at this moment in time, where we're about to make that shift towards this national system that I have advocated for and that I, uh, that we've had before in the past, but now we're moving back to, uh, in this era of great change, I found it very, very interesting to hear what these speakers at CPAC had to say so without further ado let's get into what they're talking about Start with matt gates we'll start with matt gates i feel like this is a good one to start with uh and we have an, a number of names that we'll run through uh starting with matt gates we're going to talk about his speech we're going to be talking about uh Millet's speech uh uh Millet. dang what's his his first name. The, the, the new president of Argentina. For whatever reason, I am blanking on his name. His first name. But Millet, he's speaking at CPAC. We're going to talk about his speech. We're going to be talking about Nayib Bukele's speech. He's the the president of El Salvador who rounded up the, who did the greatest uh, incarceration uh, operation in their country's history. And then we're going to be talking about Trump's speech very briefly because there were a number of... It was mainly a Trump rally when he spoke, so there was, like, a, a smaller number of key takeaways that I do believe are still important in the context of what we're witnessing here. So, so starting with Mad Gates, And this is a good one. All right, this is a good one. All these are good, right? So, but uh, I'll I just ask you to bear with me as we try to go over them all in... Reasonable time, <laughs> uh, you know how I am with time. So here we go. Medgates, House Representative Medgates, in a speech to CPAC, uh, and we'll just start this off. He openly called for the U.S. to not just defund the UN, but for the U.S. to leave the United Nations. So right off the bat, here we have a, a, a doozy. Actually, I'm not entirely sure what order they all spoke. I, I just watched the videos and took my notes so uh, i could be very much out of chronological order here but he called for the defunding and the leaving fr- uh, and the exit from the united nations which is again something that i advocate for so it, it's nice to see this this very prominent voice in in maga specifically in congress i mean he led the charge for getting rid of that that bum kevin mccarthy after he made a backroom deal to fund ukraine even when our own government wasn't funded which is treason <laughs> Which is true. You're going to use taxpayer money to fund another government, another country, when our own government isn't even funded. Treason. Treason. Uh, it's, it's, It's treason across the board. But alas, it's very interesting to see that this guy is on the issue of the U.N. standing where I stand and it it's been a very wild ride watching the America First movement come around to where i am and it's not like it's a surprise or like i'm i'm just so smart guys I, i'm just so intelligent no no one understands my intellect <laughs> it's it's none of that it's just that my positions I, I i i took America First to its logical conclusions and now the rest of the movement is rapidly approaching those logical conclusions themselves Uh, and the events of the day are sort of speeding up this process where now we have one of the most prominent members of congress the most prom one of the most prominent members of the house coming on stage at cpac one of the biggest political events in america during a presidential election year And before an entire audience of not just MAGA, not just America Firsters, but of any American who bothers to watch what the Republicans have to offer here. He has called for the United States to defund and leave the United Nations. Now, he does so for different reasons. But this is what I've been calling for i've been saying this the united nations is a danger to our sovereignty he has come around to my position because that is the logical end result of putting america first you can't have america and the u.n first you can't have america and its allies first you can't have america and israel america and ukraine america and taiwan you can't have america and first america first there's no room for other countries it's very simple And because of the increasing fervor to put America first, precisely because of how much is being given and doled out to foreign countries and to foreigners living in our own country, illegal immigrants, well, the the fervor for putting America first just grows stronger by the day, and thus as it grows stronger, as the frustration grows... The natural response is to take the concept of America first and to become, you could say, more radicalized with it. But at the end of the day, being radicalized as an America firster, for now, for now, we'll see where this goes 10, 20 years later on. But right now, being radical in the America first position is actually just taking America first to its logical conclusions and questioning what was previously unquestionable. As he has just done with the UN. Defund the UN. And, and now he said this again, very differently than I would have articulated it. He said this in the context of needing to balance the budget, right? And, and he said that if slash when we send billions of dollars to Israel, which he also is in favor of, uh, but like, sure, we could do that, but let's balance the budget. How do we balance the budget? Well, for every dime you give to Israel, you need cuts in the federal budget, and you can start with cuts in the amount of money we give to the UN. And that's, and again, while the rationale is different from what I've said and what I've articulated, perhaps I just have to take the L on that one. You know, I I can't expect them to be just like me, and perhaps this is a more politically sound way, a more politically savvy way to convince the average american voter that maybe not giving money to the u.n is a good idea we want to fund israel but we have we can't just have an unbalanced budget let's take money away from the u.n there we go there we can now we can fund countries it's it's politically savvy it's it's less direct than me but perhaps less direct is going to be more effective in this scenario uh... so i endorse <laughs> I endorse. Like, if that was the case, so i shoot. <laughs> Go ahead, give 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 all that give all that money to Israel. Oh my God, we, we're getting out of the UN. Shit, I'll take. I I you know what? I can take the financial hit. Okay, I I think we can financially recover from this. Okay, where we're gonna give. Ugh, gosh, we're gonna give 14 billion to Israel. But hey, at least we're gonna get out of the UN. I'll take that deal. I will take that deal. <laughs> yeah. But this is crazy that he's come around to this position, and he he also he says I want the UN. Uh, uh, and where was the direct quote? That's the direct quote. Okay, he said, "quote We shouldn't have any foreign aid to any other country without corresponding cuts to our own bloated federal budget. If you want to send aid to Israel, fine. Pay for it by defunding the United Nations. I want the UN to be zeroed out in our budget. The U.S. should be out of the UN, and the UN." should be out of the U.S., end quote. Woo-wee! This is huge. Like, this is huge. This is the new mainstream position. You are watching the birth of a mainstream position on the American right. The, the rising, the, the preeminent uh, new American order that is MAGA. And the new mainstream in MAGA is rapidly approaching, let's get out of the UN. It's not. It's beyond, let's just defund the World Health Organization. It's beyond, let's not be giving money to the World Bank and all these other institutions. It's, let's leave the UN. Oh my god. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's so beautiful. Uh, well, let's well, Let's continue. <laughs> let's continue. He also said, quote, What's really left unsaid in this Ukraine aid debate, he moves on to talk about Ukraine, quote, What's really left unsaid in this Ukraine aid debate is that Europe's fecklessness is a direct result of them becoming national security welfare queens, largely at your expense, and he's talking about the crowd of Americans, Our European allies, which consist of some very wealthy nations, underspend on their own defense because they dupe you into paying for much of it, end quote. A shot across the bow at NATO that goes beyond, almost as far as Trump when he says, "Ah, you know, we just won't defend you (laughs) if you aren't paying your dues. If you aren't paying your dues, we're not going to defend you you're not honoring your end of the the contract that says you have to spend X amount of your on your military. So we're not obligated to honor the contract and defend you. That's that simple. Very, very real estate businessman uh, type interpretation of that. And they were they, they thought they were pissed before. Now it's not just the president of the United States articulating ideas like like this. It's congress specifically the most powerful one of the most powerful caucuses in congress uh, the freedom caucus <laughs> the freedom caucus the america first wing of the republicans who ousted a speaker for like the first time in ages in the united states these are the guys who are whose leader is now or, or either leader or very avid spokesman of this group of Republicans is now advocating this same position. NATO is on the chopping block, folks. It's just a matter of time. Uh, pull out of the UN, and pretty soon, it's going to be pull out of the, the the NATO. Pull out of NATO. When, when Ukraine loses, oh my God, imagine how fast positions are going to change on NATO. When Ukraine loses after everything we gave them and the hundreds of billions of dollars we gave them, no one's ever going to want foreign aid to be given to other countries ever again. No one's going to want to now have to defend a demilitarized Europe from a Russia that's stronger than it's ever been. NATO is going to be a non-starter in the new America. And that is a lovely development from an American perspective. If you're European, you might have mixed feelings on that. But from an American perspective, uh, specifically an America first nationalist perspective, not an American internationalist perspective, because there are different American perspectives. I won't claim to be the only one. But from an American national perspective, this is magnificent. This is this is beautiful. These And this should have been done a long time ago, but the fact that I get to live through all this is so exciting. And Gates, he also went into... He criticized France and Spain in particular, noting that they spend less on their militaries than we do on the departments of labor and interior, respectively. Uh, he, oh, and he also said, quote, With friends like these, do we really need to be searching behind every sand dune or in every Central Asian cave? For more enemies? <laughs> end quote. Beautifully said. And Gates continued, and he went straight from, uh... He said, quote, We went sh- straight from a welfare program for Afghan poppy farmers to this. America is not the world's police force, and we are not the world's piggy bank. It's not sustainable, end quote. Now, that's sort of the last bit of, uh... Heavy hitting news that I gathered from his speech. He does go on for a bit more before he ends his, his speech. But wow. Wow. Who. Uh, what? 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 Trump, was, Trump comes onto the seat in 2015, right? Trump comes the seat. Who in 2015, before Trump announces his his candidacy, his candidacy, who in 2015 would have said that ideas like these would become the new mainstream? On a rising, uh, preeminent American political right of of all places, who who would have said that the right would be would be a dominant and preeminent force in American politics, especially in the post-9/11 world? Who would have said that? Who would have said that after Obama wins uh, two elections? Who would have said that? Maybe some. Maybe some fringe voice that would have said, oh, look, uh, the Republicans are making gains here, 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 and here. But no one would have said that the Republican Party of Dick Cheney and Bush would be so thoroughly murdered by their own. <laughs> uh, politically murdered, of course, you know. It's not literal, at least I don't think so. <laughs> but who would have thought that that party would have such a a, a successful, hostile takeover in the aftermath of the failed take over that was the tea party MAGA this is the new America speaking and that's what sort of uh it, and, and enraptured me with this latest CPAC cause I've listened to various CPAC speeches before right? it, it's odd, right, you know you can get a speaker here you can get a speaker there you know. sometimes they say things you like and you know But this is, this is news, all right? This is, uh, again, I liken what just happened with CPAC to a sort of Bretton Woods slash Yalta conference, not for redefining the global order. Uh, Or or perhaps you could even throw in like a a Congress of Vienna, if you will, you know, to paint a more localized picture of this, because it is local. It is this isn't global order things. The global order is gonna be redefined by the BRICS. But the local order, the American order, the the pivot from an imperial to a national system, this is what we are watching be articulated at this CPAC, and that's what I think makes this so important. Like I I don't mean to glaze this as much as I am, but I just We're gonna when we look back on this ten years from now, this is going to be a watershed moment in history. And a lot of the things that we hear said by the speakers that I'm going to sort of run through uh, in the rest of this uh, segment are going to be looked back on as historical speeches. Historic speeches, if you will. And that's uh, that's Matt Gates. So now I'm going to get into Millet, Uh And we have Millay, we have Bukele, and then we have Trump. right? So now let's get into... Millet's speech. So that is Matt Gaetz. But now we'll get into Millet. Javier Millet. For whatever reason, I could not remember that his first name was Javier. And I definitely did not pause the recording in between these segments to look up what his first name was. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But Javier Millet, the new president of Argentina, he also showed up to give a speech. Now, I have not been aboard the Javier Millet hype train, you know... libertarian finally wins an election uh but after listening to him speak i understand exactly where this hype came from uh so uh, but it's not just oh it's he's a hype and he's a high profile bigger no he actually had some very substantive uh things to say and i think his speech was perhaps the most substantive uh of all the people here aside from say bukele uh, again, Trump he had important things to say, but his his speech was more of like what you'd get at a Trump rally, and there were uh, fewer takeaways that <laughs> are uh, up substance. And you know he he's a people pleaser. He's a people pleaser, and we love that about it. But Millet's speech was very very substantive, and was primarily focused on economics, and how economic systems influence the freedom or lack thereof. Of a society, he spoke of the failures of the neoclassical economic model and, and, or in other words, socialism. But he refers to it as the neoclassical economic model, uh, model. The neoclassical economic model and how its proponents don't accept its faults and instead go, uh, instead of changing course and adopting new models and new ways of doing things, they double down on failed policy, which is something we've observed. Uh, in a lot of other areas besides economics i mean you look at ukraine and they're doubling down on failure look at afghanistan doubling down on failure it's a habit it beyond that goes beyond economics but particularly as it pertains to economics you uh, when you look at socialists no none first of all none of them agree on what real socialism is and so with no agreement on what real socialism is you can never have an agreement on when socialism has failed it's a circular logic that Because we never consented to what real socialism is, real socialism has, therefore, never been tried before. But alas, uh, understand that when he says neoclassical, that you could substitute socialists for that. But I'm gonna be quoting him, so I'll I'll probably end up being... uh, I'll probably end up saying neoclassical economics a lot. But alas, he attributed this uh, refusal to change and adopt new ideas in the face of failed ideas uh, that the proponents of uh, socialist or neoclassical economic theories, uh, this this frustrating habit of theirs, he attributed this to the idea that this model hinged on a sort of zero-sum view of economics, where someone cannot win without someone else losing, uh, which itself is an idea that stems from the assumption that there is a sort of limited number of opportunities in a society and that someone winning, i.e. gaining or taking advantage of an, of an opportunity or more, multiple opportunities, somehow robs others of those opportunities and therefore hurts them, which again is the idea that you winning means that someone else is hurt, which when you combine that with the idea that going out of business is an absolute some is an absolute negative. Uh, a company going out of business is an absolute negative and a business succeeding is therefore the, the result of that and that the success of one business can only ever be negative because they're putting someone else out of business. It leaves no room for the idea that that business succeeded because people were winning the idea of, a, of you succeeding, in this uh, sort of interpretation of economics doesn't factor in that in capitalism you have to provide a service in order to win you have to benefit other people in order to win and get ahead so if you put someone else out of business it's because you are providing a greater service for either a greater price or a greater quality or perhaps you have a better technology right and so you putting that other guy out of business makes way for the expansion of this better technology, which improves the lives of other people, including the people who just got out, put out of business because now they have, get to use your product and the society as a whole improves. But the idea that there's a limited number of opportunities doesn't allow for that line of thinking. However, the idea that there are that the number of opportunities in a society are not static, but can be expanded by new technology and new developments, and by better business, that is where Melee is coming from here. So uh, there's that. Uh, he and from the from the idea that you know someone going out of business is an absolute negative, uh, you get from that the basis of the subsequent idea that you need government to regulate who wins and loses, so that you can control and mitigate the damage from someone winning in an economy because he's doing so much damage to everyone else because in order for him to win someone else has to lose This again this zero-sum view of economics and so therefore if if it's zero-sum then you need the government to come in and mitigate the damage from people losing and in some cases prevent others from losing or in Millet's words the socialist method and he brought up the, the example of the candlesticks uh, versus the light bulbs where if a business going out of business is an objective bad and you need government to intervene to keep people going out of business well we'd still be we'd still have candles we'd still all be living under candlelight instead of the electrical light bulb illumination provided to us by thomas edison but you don't get a sort of thriving light bulb industry, a progression of society through the use of new technology. If you're always intervening to prevent bad business or outdated business from going out of business, and that's what Millay argues as well. He emphasized the importance of private property rights and the mutual consent required for the exchange of goods, saying that the government one doesn't need to intervene between two consenting parties, and two. The intervention disrupts the mechanism for determining the value of a good, which is price. So, the, the dollar, which is usually measured in dollars in modern times, but price is the mechanism for determining the value of a good because it's sort of an, an aggregate of what people are willing to pay across the various spectrums of what that price might be. Government intervention disrupts this and gets in the way of the price mechanism. And this can lead to shortages if the price is set too low, lower than what the actual cost of doing that business is or acquiring that good. And you can see this in various socialist models that have been tried in the past where they'll try to institute price controls on certain goods. And the result of instituting price controls is that you set the price uh, at a point. Where the business can't make money off of the sale of that good, and thus any loss that the business suffers can't be made up for through profit. And so gradually, either either the business goes out of business, uh, or somewhere along the line, the people who provide the good go out of business... Because now they're not able to sell that good at a price that, that makes their operations sustainable. Because the, the lower down on the sort of value-added scale you get, the lower the price is that you can even afford to sell your stuff for. So the government comes in and says, you have to sell it for this price. Well, you're fucked. Yeah, and that's uh, the difference between government intervention and the sort of libertarian perspective of no government intervention. Because intervention gets in the way of price. And price is the mechanism by which you can determine the value of goods. Now, he also talked about the importance of competition, the division of labor, and the idea of social cooperation, which is derived from trade. Because trade isn't just done between countries, it's done between people within a country, within a a locale, within a town. I mean, when you buy shoes uh, from somebody in the store... You're doing trade with somebody in a city, and that guy in the city is doing trade from somebody, either with a manufacturer or with somebody in another city. But trade, uh, we do trade every day when you go buy things at the store. That's trade. You you give dollars and you get goods. And the, the core premise here is that you aren't going to be, you're, you're going to be less likely to fight your neighbor if you need him to buy your stuff. You're going to be less likely to fight your neighbor if you have to buy his stuff. Trade equals peace. The voluntary exchange of goods creates cohesion in a society. And if the parties involved in these exchanges are consenting, then everyone wins. It is win-win. Millet talked about how per capita GDP for societies around the world remained about the same from the year zero, the year of our Lord, zero, all the way up to the year 1800. And since then, per capita GDP has multiplied 15 times. The population has nearly 10x, because uh, he said the population was around 800 million, uh, from 800 million to 8 billion people from this, from 1800 to now. And he said GDP has risen 150 times uh, and that extreme poverty has plummeted from 95 percent to just five, which is, again, not just attributable to capitalism, but to the Industrial Revolution, which one could argue wouldn't have happened without capitalism and without allowing the concentrations of wealth and goods from people who produce things to produce more things and use new technologies to sort of uh, accelerate that process of industry and of product and the, of the growth of productivity the industrial revolution is a real miracle and i've i've brought up a, a couple of these points myself in arguing why the industrial revolution is so good and why the green agenda this attempt to deindustrialize this is so evil because you're going to kill people without industry you can't support these populations and but alas, he's talking purely from the economic side of this, and the benefits, not from ninety-five uh, percent grinding poverty, ninety-five percent of humanity living in crushing, inescapable grinding poverty. Because le- that's what a lot of the critics of the industrial revolution usually don't take into account for. That for the majority of human history. Save for these, these last 200 years. Everybody. The average man. Everybody. Was living in poverty. Poverty. With uh, like uh, a, a small single digit. Or in the case of the, the, the wealthiest societies in the world. Maybe double digit. Percentiles of people living in any kind of true affluence. But the majority of humanity lived in poverty. And yet today, when the population is 8 billion, a smaller percentage of that 8 billion people lives in poverty than the percentage of people who used to live in poverty before, when the population was an order of magnitude smaller. This is attributable to capitalism the dominant economic system that was in place over the course of this transition uh we could also attribute that to the industrial revolution but that's a a separate argument and he says that this was achieved through the concentrations of wealth and capital inevitably giving birth to monopolies which Millet says promoted this unprecedented era of prosperity and well-being he says this on the premise that if a company outcompetes other companies the ultimate beneficiary of this is the consumer who gets a better product at a better price and so long as you have a free market system then the monopolies can and will go out of business if they lose their competitiveness because other businesses will be free to rise up offering better products better prices or both Uh now the real world uh, in I, I I was about to say interpretation. The real world practice of this is that a lot of these monopolies, when you get that kind of power, the natural uh, tendency is to jump into politics and to tip your hands on the scales to have policy benefit you rather than your competition. And so that there is you know uh, a counterbalance to this idea that monopolies. Um, are not bad for a society, or that monopolies get become unproductive, but uh, that is again sort of where I diverge from him on this. He says that there's not necessarily anything wrong with a monopoly in and of itself, but we all understand that when you when you win the competition, you're when you're at the top, you're less likely to be competitive, and that's true of everybody. You're you're not as as hungry as you were when you were number 30 or number 150 and so there are real world examples of why monopolies usually don't benefit society as much once they reach the top but again in the context of a free market society free market society the monopoly will go out of business in time if it becomes uncompetitive Because new people can spring up. And this is part of the way that uh, Standard Oil lost its competitiveness before being broken up. Because you had lots of other oil deposits being discovered around the country. And new businesses springing up all the time. And Carnegie, while he had vast power, he was not the only game in town. And in certain locales, he wasn't a a game in town at all. And there was also shit-making. So monopolies are rare monopolies are true rarities uh precisely because of how competitive you have to be to even establish your position at the top so while they are rare and more likely to be spawned by way of government policy than anything else Millet argues that there is nothing inherently bad about having a monopoly And that's sort of just a difference between me, and himself, and myself. But you can understand where he comes from when he says this in the context of a free market capitalist society. And this contrasts to the neoclassical interpretation, which uh, says that monopolies are an objective bad in society. And we just went over a couple of the reasons why you could reasonably believe that they are. He also went on to talk about how overregulation impedes economic freedom and in turn impedes the well-being of the society at large. He brings up the inter the intentional desire of Marxists to reduce population and again going back to the the climate crisis agenda which wants to deindustrialize the world, the only outcome of which is going to be depopulation because if you don't have industry, you can't support a post-industrial uh, <laughs> Uh, revolution population but i'll digress he brings up marxist always saying that because there's a limited amount of opportunities you can't have more people because more people will simply not have opportunities so it's better to to kill people and we see this uh, manifest with the green agenda uh... so he, he brings this up and he also sort of uh... went down the list of why they're wrong and. How these the, this interpretation of economics doesn't just lead to attempts to uh, reduce the population, uh, but but he also covered the various uh, specific ways in which this attempt to reduce the population is done, from birth control to Planned Parenthood to peak oil. You remember peak oil, how we're going to reach peak oil, and then oil production is going to decline. Uh, where are those where are those experts now? Uh, and then there's, uh, of course, now climate change, which I've mentioned like three times in the last five minutes. All these excuses to justify less consumption, less uh, people, less prosperity, less economic growth, l- always less, right? There's never let's do more and let's become more productive. It's, no, there's a limited amount, there's a limited number of opportunities, technology is stagnant, uh, You, there's only so much food that you can afford... To create for people so you just have to have fewer people and that's that's the logical end conclusion of these kinds of lines of thinking these zero-sum lines of thinking and it's only when you adopt zero-sum lines of thinking that you can justify trying to reduce the human population and again this runs contrary to human history which usually innovates its way out of problems when presented with problems but And that's what Millet says here. And you're more likely to get these innovations in a free society, in a free market economy, because people will have an economic incentive to create these problems, to create the solution to these problems. And then, of course, he talks about how climate change, uh, the Earth's climate has been changing, and the the Earth's climate changes, and it's been changing long before humans were on the planet. That's what he, He literally says that. And he instead poses a view of the world that understands... Uh, that humanity is not a a cancer to the world, but is actually a good to the world. We don't have to play by a, a a set of rules that say that there is only opportunity this x number of opportunities, and therefore you can only have x number of people. No, you can create new opportunities. Y- you're only you're more likely to have a Picasso or an Einstein or Mozart, or, or, say, a George Washington. He doesn't say George Washington, but I, I'm going to say George Washington. You're more likely to have people like this, or, or Martin Luther King. You're more likely to have people like this when you have more people to begin with. You're more likely to get people like this when you have 10 million people than you are if you have just 10 people. And that's just an objective reality. And thus, you're more likely to innovate your way beyond problems if you have more people and more minds to put together it's it's a humanist worldview a capitalist humanist worldview that he has put forth at CPAC now the reason I just covered melay's hour-long lesson on basic economics is because I believe that given melay's popularity within the MAGA movement and the fact that he's speaking at CPAC in 2024 to begin with that this view of economics That this view on the world and this rejection of the zero-sum approach to economics and an embrace to free market capitalism as the more moral and more righteous and more human economic system, I believe that this view of economics will become the new baseline for the Western Hemisphere's understanding of economics as a whole. With America in particular adopting this understanding. Remember that one of Milei's first actions as Argentina's president was to peg his country's currency to the US dollar, which would be a very stupid thing to do with the dollar if you were anticipating that the dollar was going to crash and never recover. So, but because he's done that, that means that Argentina's future is in no small part directly linked to our own future in America. And so in that way, we're sort of joined at the hip with Argentina now. And he's laying out this vision. And this vision is going to be contagious, particularly among the rising, preeminent MAGA conservative movement. And that's what makes this speech as important as it is. That is Millet. So now we'll get into Bukele and what he had to say as well.